progesterone is a significant steroid hormone and it actually has multiple pathways that's way beyond the traditional thought of just female organism pregnancy and fertility it plays a role in male fertility neurophysiological conditions and mood in both men and women it acts directly on the central nervous system it is a painkiller and also helps with sleep and it has a massive effect across the body. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, living life with a purpose. I created this show because I knew that women just like me in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. Welcome back to Menopause Mastery. So today I'm gonna do a deep dive into some more scientific brain candy and we're going to deep dive into a discussion about progesterone and particularly we're going to go through some literature of a recent uh, review analysis that was completed at about the middle of 22 and released uh, from the international journal of molecular sciences and it's a review of progesterone and its wide range of effects particularly on a female body so progesterone is obviously a hormone that we think about when we talk about female fertility and pregnancy. And we think about it along those lines and that it is this hormone that sort of counterbalances estrogen. And obviously it has a lot of gynecological impact when we look at fertility because often it is a progesterone deficiency that may learn, uh, lead to preterm labor or uh, early miscarriage and often synthetic progesterones are used or actually let me restate that synthetic progestins are actually used in uh, in order to uh, protect against those things but progesterone and its metabolites have a lot of physiological implications across the body and that's what i want to call call on today so first off progesterone was the first hormone ever identified and it's generally considered a female sex steroid hormone. And it's actually synthesized from cholesterol by the way of a hormone called pregnenolone. And it is a major gonadal hormone, so it's actually made in the corpus luteum of the ovaries, but it is also made at a much lower level in the adrenal cortex. It's also made in men in the leg dig cells of the testes in the adipose and other tissues. Progesterone is also synthesized by the nervous system and neurons in the glia, so in the brain, and actually acts on the nervous system. So it's not only a hormone that is involved in fertility, it's also a very central hormone widely distributed in the brain. And it metabolizes other neuroactive steroids, of which a metabolite called allopregnenolone, almost as bioavailable and bioactive as progesterone hormone. So let's talk about its mechanism. So progesterone is mediated between nuclear receptors and non-nuclear receptors. And we have two different receptors. We have a progesterone receptor A and a progesterone receptor B. 
And they are both expressed equally under physiological conditions. So we all have both of these receptors. And the progesterone receptor B seems to um, have a binding effect that is a much stronger activator than the progesterone receptor A. And A acts predominantly as a repressor. So think PRB, progesterone receptor B is the activator, and progesterone receptor A is the repressor. And we have a distributed balance between the A's and the B's. And But if that balance between A and B become expressed out of balance, we may have other gynecological pathological situations like endometriosis or endometrial hyperplasia. And so it's been shown that the progesterone receptor A can repress not only the activity of the progesterone receptor B, but it also is mediated by the uh, estrogen receptor and also the glucocorticoid and, med- and mineral corticoid receptors, so your cortisol receptors. And in the myometrial tissue, the tissue around the uterus, a third progesterone receptor called receptor C has also been documented. So progesterone, the non-genomic effects, so the cellular effects of progesterone across various tissues have been measured, and it acts on several different areas of the body, including genetic activation or gene activation to create secondary messengers and to also create biological function. So let's get into some of the actions. So our hormones, obviously made by our ovaries, are different from other organs in the body. The ovaries do not contain some enzymes, particularly one called 21 and one called 11, beta hydroxylases, and thus they are not able to produce things like cortisol and mineral corticoids. So progesterone produced in the gonads, carried mostly in the blood, exert the most biological function. So your ovarian progesterone production is the strongest biological function. The progesterone created by the adrenals is largely converted to glucocorticoids and androgens. So this is an important measure because you gotta remember that progesterone, especially made by the gonads, made by our ovaries, declines long before our estrogen does. And so we see that we no longer have possibly the biological strength of the effects because of the ovarian loss of function, despite the fact that the progesterone is being made in the adrenals, but it is being made into, after the fact, into cortisol and possibly the androgens like androstenedione. So that's often referred to as the cortisol steel, right? It's not exactly a cortisol steel, but it is the fact that your progesterone can be pulled to make cortisol and cortisol metabolites. This is also a big player in fertility, right? If we're under a lot of stress, the body may selectively through hypothalamic control tell the body to make more glucocorticoids and more androgens out of progesterone, especially the um, hormones coming from the adrenals. So it's important to know that progesterone only stays free also. So once it gets out of the taxi cab, so every hormone in our body has a binding protein. And so progesterone is a highly bound protein. Cortisol is a highly bound protein. And it's only available for about five minutes in the blood for it to function. And then it's about 50% is metabolized 
into a 5-alpha-dihydroprogesterone in the corpus luteum, and 35% gets made into another metabolite and then metabolized. And then these metabolites, so think of it, if you've heard me talk about estrogen detox, estrogen detox goes through two steps. Well, same thing. We have progesterone going through multiple steps of detoxification in the liver. Progesterone goes through the same pathways. So it gets sulfated or it also gets uh, bound to a glucuronide bond. So it goes through very similar processes to estrogen in the liver for detoxification. And circulating progesterone can also be converted by a kidney 21 hydroxylase enzyme into a deoxycorticosterone, which uh, results in a lot of side effects like water retention and swelling. And we see a lot of that, particularly during pregnancy. At the latter stages of pregnancy, we start to see a lot of water retention and a lot of that's being driven by progesterone. So obviously when we are fertile, our hormones are cycling and their actions are determined by that menstrual cycle. So, you know, when we look at that, progesterone reaches significantly high levels when our ovaries follicle matures, right? So when we see the follicle mature, the concentration of estradiol and progesterone reach one to 10,000 fold higher than what's in circulation. So what's happening locally on the uh, granulosa cells is quite high quite high. So luteal phase, progesterone um, has its greatest peak in serum concentrations after the follicular phase and after ovulation in the luteal phase, uh, while mid to late luteal phase progesterone secretions is more pulsatile and a little bit lower. So we see the greatest rise of progesterone in that second half of your cycle right before your period starts. So in the case of progesterone and conception, we need progesterone to increase during the early stages of embryo implantation and fertilization, and especially after implantation. So we see a significant rise in progesterone um, early in pregnancies, and then obviously it climbs all the way to late pregnancy. So let's talk a little bit more because we're really talking about what's it doing in the body. So progesterone has lots of other effects. So progesterone has an influence on sex differences in pain perception in adults and children and neonatals. So we're talking every age group. There's an imbalance between men and women and our response to opioids and steroid hormones. So sex steroids have been shown to affect the central opioid activity, while steroids changes in pregnancy can also modulate the opioid system. So if we look at the expression of progesterone receptors in our reproductive tract and our, our mammary glands, so our breasts, progesterone receptors are also widely expressed in the nervous system. So one of the studies showed that progesterone receptors in the central nervous system, adds, there's a huge importance to that and the impact and the pathogenesis of neuropathic pain. Increased levels of progesterone can trigger the activation of spinal cord opioid system and increase the release of endogenous opioids. So our natural painkillers get amplified by the administration or the endogenous production, so the internal production of progesterone. So recent studies indicated that when given a supplemental form of progesterone, there was an increase in delta opioid receptors in the spinal cord and 
a greater density of opioid receptors as well. So, and especially if you combined it with progesterone and estrogen. So I think that's interesting because it's a recognition that progesterone actually buffers pain and it buffers it directly from the central nervous system. And here's something else that's interesting. I did not know this until I read the study. In 1941, Hans Selyes, he is the guy who came up with the stress response <laughs> theory. He reported that injections of progesterone in rats produced a prompt anesthetic event. And so that really showed that progesterone in the first time had this direct effect on pain. Now, granted, he did the study in rats, but we recognize that that happens to be true. So there is an interaction and there's a difference in, in sexes and how we perceive pain and pain-related pathways. And there is an interaction between estradiol and progesterone and those pain-related pathways. So it's hypothesized that high progesterone during the state of ovulation would be associated with a reduction in pain experience. So when they looked at progesterone, estradiol, and testosterone and cortisol in women it, at the two major phases of the menstrual cycle, right? They observed that immediately before ovulation when estradiol was high and progesterone was low, usually they're like days 10 to 12 after you just started your cycle. And then they also looked at it in the luteal phase, which is like days 20 to 22 of the cycle. They were able to see that the monitoring of pain intensities in these two phases of the menstrual cycle were very different. They found that pain and unpleasant ratings of response to pain stimuli that reflected the component of pains were significantly lower before ovulation and compared to the luteal phase. Higher progesterone was associated with lower effective pain component, reduced activation, and with the emotion processing network in a response to pain and painful stimuli and a decrease of connectivity with the emotional regulation network. So what does all this nerd speak mean? It means depending on if you're cycling, where your progesterone level is in that cycle. So whether you're at the first couple weeks after you start your period or at ovulation when you're more fertile or in those last week or so before your period, the fluctuation of progesterone affected not only pain, but the associated network that binds pain to emotion. So these sex steroids make a significant difference on pain. And they're, they're not the only ones to study that. Other, other, um, other studies have shown that changes in progesterone levels have a significant correlation with, um, with kind of an anesthetic effect and better pain tolerance. So in addition to the progesterone anesthetic effect, Selye's also suggested one of the metabolites of progesterone may also be an effective sedative. And it's a, a 3-alpha-hydroxy metabolite of progesterone. Although these results were promising, no major progress was made for a really long time in clinical practice. And some of this is because progesterone is poorly absorbed and needs a lipid layer to get utilized. And so in order for this really to work, we needed a preparation of progesterone that was either topical in a lipid layer, or it was micronized into an oral progesterone pill that enabled it to be absorbed more heavily. 
And so when they were able to check that, they found that this progesterone metabolite and another one called 3-alpha and 5-alpha tetrahydroprogesterone in 3 and 5-allopregnanolone were later considered to be more like a barbiturate modulator of a receptor called a GABA receptor. So GABA is the major neurotransmitter in the brain that helps keep us asleep, and it is the major anti-anxiety neurotransmitter. And they also saw that progesterone had a positive effect on glycine and the NMDA receptor and the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors and a thing called a G-coupled protein receptor. So what that means is it acts almost as a neurosteroid. And so when we saw that, we saw that progesterone has this positive binding effect to the GABA receptor, and it also helps with glycine to get you into a relaxed and, and state of paralysis during REM sleep, so it helps with that as well. So progesterone is expressed all over the body, but has significant impact on the brain and central nervous system, and it's important for cognitive function and emotional processing. So, like I said, progesterone gets metabolized into a bunch of different metabolites and they themselves have different effect on the body. So depending where you are on your cycle, not only do you have fluctuation of your progesterone and where it's going, but the metabolites as well. So your sensation of pain and your relative uh, feeling of pain is going to be different depending where you're on your cycle. So one of the other things I think is interesting is these steroid hormones, the progesterone and what they call the pregnane steroids, which are these progesterone metabolites and uh, DHEA metabolites, during acute stress, the adrenal glands really synthesize. So when we're really stressed out, the adrenal glands are going to synthesize great amounts of the progesterone metabolite, allopregnanolone, and local production um, in the brain of this metabolite as well is going to be increased. So when we have then chronic exposure, we see this dropping of allopregnanolone levels. So what does that mean? In, acute, in an acute stress situation, short-term, quick, needed, there is an adrenal gland activity that sort of amplifies the active progesterone and the overall production of cortisol short-term. When we have long-term critical stress that's been going on for a long, long time, we see a slowing of that cortisol pathway and actually a diminishing response of cortisol that used to be referred to as you know cortisol depletion or adrenal fatigue, stage three adrenal fatigue. And again, it's more of your hypothalamus, pituitary, and these different organs getting the message that they need to down-regulate. So the production of progesterone to allopregnanolone to corticosteroids and mineral corticoids gets diminished over time under prolonged protracted stress. And that is directly acting in the brain and the central nervous system. So, so let's talk about the modulation, particularly of GABA and the NMDA receptor. So these steroids act by influencing nerve cell excitability, so turning on that excitability, or dampening that receptor responsibility. And in the central nervous system, these steroids bind and modulate both GABA and the NMDA receptor. And they, they select a, play a selective role in 
in crucially binding to both receptors. So of course it depends which one is getting stimulated and how the body is perceiving that. For the positive modulation of GABA, the, the body has to have a stimulating effect and it's actually things like chloride channels and calcium channel blockers and, and the influx of chloride into the nerve cells that actually cause a decrease of this activity. So the sedative and the hypnotic effects and the anticonvulsant properties and all these other things that are associated with GABA have a loose association with progesterone because of its impact on these chloride channels and the receptor, at uh, the GABA receptor itself. So these steroids and all of these with progesterone may, may be the big thing behind all this analgesic sort of calming, relaxing, pain-blocking effect that we see in women in their second half of their cycle when progesterone is very high. So what do we take home for that? So many of us have talked about, and I know I've talked about it many times on, on Menopause Mastery, that progesterone has this huge effect on sleep. And particularly when women get into that perimenopausal state, the years prior to menopause, which is the last day after a year of not having a period, what we see is that the loss of progesterone causes basically these GABA receptors to be unstimulated probably a lack of stimulation of the chloride channel and more excitability. So we see more anxiety, we see more agitation, we see more insomnia. And so when we think about those GABA receptors in the brain and the fact that they are widely distributed throughout the entire central nervous system, even in the amygdala, the hippocampus, the hypothalamus, this is the most widely spread inhibitory neurotransmitter, so it calms us down. And so anytime we can positively stimulate that receptor, we're gonna see a positive effect. And so progesterone is the biggest player in that pathway, and that's why we see some pretty significant effects on sleep and relaxation. So when we look at progesterone, we also can think about it with things like serotonin, and dopamine and what they call the cholinergic side of the brain, which is your acetylcholine pathway that's really important for the brain's memory and focus. So progesterone as well as estradiol has been expected to be and suggested to be a have a marked effect on your serotonin system. Progesterone has been suggested to increase the transmission of serotonin and conversely chronic progesterone's uh, treatment seems to decrease the expression of serotonin receptors when they've looked at it in, mat in rats. So it's probably a pulsatile dose that's really necessary. So what that means is, is we need progesterone to increase the transmission of serotonin. But if we constantly give the system a, a significant amount of progesterone, we may see a decrease in the interactions and the expression of those receptors. So it's probably the up-down regulation of progesterone that we see during cycling that is actually helpful. The up-down regulation of enzymes that affect all these neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, and noradrenaline all have impact with progesterone. And progesterone down-regulates some of the enzymes that recycle 
both serotonin and dopamine. Those are the, are the monoamine oxidase A and B enzymes, or MAOA and MAOB. Progesterone down regulates them, so it slows down that enzyme, allowing serotonin and dopamine to circulate longer. So it allows for more higher progesterone levels and more serotonin synthesis. The other thing is dopamine is involved in motor control, learning, motivation, reward system, and decision-making, and voluntary working memory. So progesterone and estradiol both impact dopamine transmission, and progesterone and estrogen have also been observed to affect the number of dopamine receptors when we looked in rats, and we also see progesterone causing an inhibition of dopamine receptors followed by stimulation. So dopamine has this sort of back and forth mechanism with um, progesterone. Progesterone stimulates it and then destimulates it. And it's in a very specific manner because obviously women are going to have a, a significant fluctuation in this stimulation of dopamine and not where men don't carry um, levels of progesterone at any real fluctuation or high levels. So the take home message here is progesterone has an effect on all of our neurotransmitters that we pay attention to. The GABA neurotransmitter that keeps us asleep and helps us calm down anxiety and stay relaxed. It affects serotonin, which makes us feel good and have kumbaya. And then progesterone also affects dopamine, which is our reward mechanism, helps us with memory and motivation. So now progesterone also is immunomodulatory. So we understand that we have biological differences in, in immune modulation, particularly during pregnancy. And I don't wanna go into a lot of discussion of that, but when we're looking at progesterone, it can regulate local and systemic inflammation by reducing in inflammatory cell infiltration into different tissues. So for instance, progesterone regulates the cervix and, cervix and cervical mucus tissues, reducing inflammatory cell inf um, inflammation. Uh, progesterone can also inhibit dendritic cells and dendritic cells um, mediate the proliferation of T cells, right? So T cells are part of that immune response. Dendritic cells exist in the brain and the gut, and they sort of send feelers up into the tissue areas, up into the um, gut area to sort of feel what's going on. So progesterone has this favoring of promoting immune tolerance, right? So it helps these cells regulate themselves appropriately. So when we look at the menstrual cycle and progesterone, we see that we have different responses to inflammatory pathways at different times. So in the luteal phase, so the second half of your cycle when our progesterone levels are high, we see a decline in leukocyte proliferation and interferon gamma production and a shift towards TH2 cytokine production which all of that basically means in geek speak, we have this shift towards an immunoprotective property against things like viruses, right? And so when we look at progesterone, it mediates the immune adaptation and it induces this dominance of a Th2 cytokine and anti-inflammatory interleukins and suppresses the pro-inflammatory immune response, whereas estrogen is the exact opposite. It stimulates all these other pathways. 
So progesterone is immunomodulatory. Now, when we look at the different ways progesterone is, is applied, right? So in pharmacological uses, now as a complete disclaimer, if you don't know me, I'm a clinical nutritionist and researcher, certified functional medicine practitioner. I do not prescribe. And actually I love talking about the hormones because I can talk about them without really being influenced by the fact that I would be prescribing because obviously I'm not a prescriber. But let's talk about progesterone and how it is administered. So progesterone is ineffective, like I said, when it's given orally in a powder form. It's highly lipophilic and insoluble in water. So what that means is if it's not in an emulsion or micronized into a capsule in a fat molecule, you cannot absorb it. And therefore, intramuscular application, or so that was either injection early on, or transdermal application was kind of the most commonly used way to forgive progesterone for decades. Micronized oral progesterone has been around since the 1980s. So if anybody said that oral progesterone was hard to get or it hasn't been around very long, they need to check their medical history because it's been available since 1980 in an oral micronized form. And this overcame the absorption and also um, did not have the adverse metabolic effects of synthetic progestins. All right, so we're gonna get into the differences in, in medical administration. Progesterone is defined as the bioidentical form of progesterone that we make, meaning that the chemical compound is exactly identical to what we make. That is available in a bioidentical compounded form. It is available as prometrium, and then you can find generics. So, and that those that are oral are going to be a micronized, or if somebody's trying to sell you one that is not micronized, don't bother taking it orally. Progestins. Progestins are synthetic progesterone mimics that are not biochemically the same. We use a lot of these in, in lots of different uh, ways. Megase, uh, we have Premarin and Prempro. The Pro part is a synthetic progestin. We have several birth control pills, many, many birth control pills out on the market that have synthetic progestins. Well, progesterone, um, has to go through the detox pathways, just like estrogen, the CYP3A4 pathway, the CY3, uh, CYP3A5 and 3A7, just a little bit, and the CYP2C19 pathway. So it's gotta go through the liver and get detoxified. When we take these synthetic progestins, they are going to go through these pathways and ultimately and ultimately go through first pass liver metabolism before we get them. The challenge is if you go out and look online and try and read the literature about progesterone, ill-informed and poorly written literature will often use these words interchangeably. And so you have to really look and see if they're talking about natural bioidentical progesterone, progestogens, progestins, and progestins. All of the last of those are synthetic. Progesterone should only refer to the pharmaceutical qualified bioidentical form and any of these other forms, progesterosterones, gestins, progestins, or progestins with a T-I-N-S are synthetic. And they have opposite pharmacological properties and modes of action. 
So when we look at the adverse events to synthetic forms, we do see a different pharmacodynamic activity of these types of, of progesterone mimics. So the micronized progesterone is going to be the one that you want to look at. So synthetic progestins may bind well to the progesterone receptors, right? Because that's what we're doing. We've got keys and we've got the locks, the progesterone receptor locks do bind with those synthetic progestins, but we see chemical changes to the progestin molecule that can cause important changes to how that hormone binds to their steroid receptor and make it work. And so think of it as a skeleton key that kind of fits the door and you're gonna have to jimmy the door to get it to open because it's not quite right. That's how these synthetic drugs work. And many of the undesirable side effects of these synthetic progestins are because of this. And so what's the, the normal sort of side effects? Abnormal bleeding, you know, so increased amounts of menstrual bleeding during the regular monthly period. Sometimes it can even go the other way. It can be much lighter or it could be much heavier between periods. We see headaches, tiredness, nausea, dizziness, increased depression and fatigue tiredness, definitely low libido. And we also see an, a androgenic effect because you got to remember progesterone naturally made in the uh, adrenals kind of moves towards that androgen side or the glucocorticoid side. So these synthetics tend to cause more acne, more oily skin, weight gain, and increased appetite. And sometimes we'll even see uh, glucose tolerance issues with these synthetic progestins, and probably the most damaging is these synthetic progestins in young women and older women have been um, have been implicated with symptoms and risks of thromboembolism, which is basically blood clots. Right, that was one of the reasons why they stopped a women's health study. It was the synthetic progestins in that drug that caused the risk for stroke and heart attack. Um, so when we look at the uh, route of administration. Oral progesterone um, is modulated also by our gut bacteria and the associated enzymes in the intestines and the liver where we wouldn't have that if we were applying it in other places, right? So if we're applying it in the skin or even vaginal delivery, we're gonna, it's gonna bypass those areas. Um, so when we think about all of that, the take home message is you don't wanna be on a synthetic progestin, you wanna be on a bioidentical progesterone. Now, I will tell you this, in the literature, it shows that oral micronized progesterone has a better effect on insomnia, and especially in postmenopausal women, and has been used quite significantly in varying degrees of doses, anywhere from 50 milligrams up to two, 300 milligrams for sleep. And so it's, it can be very well used when someone is struggling with sleep. Also, if we look at progesterone and your other gynecological issues, things like endometrial hyperplasia and endometriosis, progesterone is often the counterbalance to excess estrogens that may actually help reduce the inflammatory effects of, of excess estrogen and that abnormal thickening of the uterine lining. So obviously this disbalance between that estrogen and progesterone may cause that abnormal thickening. So progesterone is often very much used for that as well. And then even PMS, right? So PMS, we often see a significant uptick in, in PMS in perimenopause with the change in progesterone levels. 
But when we look at whether progesterone is an effective treatment for premenopausal uh, syndrome, not all trials showed it to be beneficial. And sometimes, especially somebody that has premenstrual dysphoric disorder, it may be progesterone and the fluctuations there that make it worse. Um, so progesterone isn't necessarily a panacea for, for PMS. And truly, a lot of those studies were also done, again, on the synthetic progesterones, right? Now, progesterone in menopause. So obviously, that's when women's periods stop. So the official day is the day one year after your periods have stopped. But the time of perimenopause and menopause is up to a, a decade or more for a lot of women. So we have cycle irregularities for a long time prior to that. And like I said before, progesterone is already decreasing significantly from the ovaries. So that means even if you have some progesterone, it is getting converted to your corticosteroids and probably your androgens from the adrenals. The actual biological effects of your estrogen are almost gone in the blood because the ovaries peter out first. So, so in women, when we look at hormone replacement, progesterone is definitely a part of that. It's not a poss might possibly need it or something to consider or maybe not consider. It has its own effect. Most of the time, women may need progesterone before they are officially in menopause because we need that support earlier on. And then if we see women have things like um, hyperplasia or an abnormal bleeding, it's much more likely to add uh, progesterone to help balance that out. You know, and maybe that would be the best thing to start with before considering things like ablation and or um, hysterectomy. You know, so progesterone has long been regarded something that would get used for perimenopausal symptoms, everything from hot flashes to night sweats to sleep issues. Like I said, progesterone works very significantly on the central nervous system. And when we start looking at some of your autoimmune conditions, it's pretty interesting. Multiple sclerosis, AM, ALS, spinal cord injury, stroke, things that are diseases that develop the kind of demyelination or cell death or inflammatory pathways, progesterone may also have a meaningful uh, activity there as well. So progesterone was shown to delay disease onset in a study looking at multiple sclerosis. So it attenuated disease severity. So it definitely uh, reduced the inflammatory response and the occurrence of demyelination in the spinal cord. Progesterone has a neuroprotective effect in the central nervous system, system as well. It increases cell survival and the bioregulation of bioenergetic systems and the improvement of neural cell pro proliferation. So what does that mean? It means that it turns up the energy in the central nervous system and saves the cells. And so progesterone is important not only in the development of the nervous system, but the modulation of it long term. And if we look at even spinal cord injury, obviously there's damage to the spinal cord. The general kind of protective effects of progesterone has been tested in animal models of, with spinal cord injury, and it reduced the harmful effects of spinal cord injury, including the inflammation and possibly restoring some function to the, to the nervous system and the spinal cord itself. So progesterone may help. So you can obviously think about that with like stroke, 
um, MS, your your Parkinson's-like disorders, all of those things may have some significant improvement with progesterone. One of the other things that I think is very interesting, so carpal tunnel syndrome and Dequervans, which I have Dequervans in this wrist, which is, is basically inflammation of the tendons in in the hands. Sometimes it's in the central part of the hands and wrist, which is carpal tunnel, and then Dequervans is in the thumb. And it tends to happen and cause compression of those nerves along this. And you get pain and you get weakness. Dequervans is known to start after pregnancy, right? It has a significant uptick post-pregnancy. And it's because progesterone affects uh, the myelin formation in the peripheral system. So it affects these nerves downstream as well. So they did a study in Sweden looking at local progesterone injections in mild to moderate uh, carpal tunnel and showed an improvement in function and the electro electrophysiological function. So actual impulses of those nerves when they injected progesterone locally. So it is, it is significant. It is significant. So, and then the last thing I'm going to say is, you know, our waters and our food and our environment is so toxic. And one of the things that I find really disturbing is no matter what you do to try and filter and clean your water, because I'm not a fan of water bottles, because at the end of the day, they're destroying the planet. But we have a lot of chemicals, steroid hormones, estrogens, synthetic progestins that are used in medication that are basically getting peed out into our you know sewer systems which are then ran through sewer cleanup and then they get in wastewater treatment and go through biodegradation and we can't really remove these synthetic progestins from the water and when they looked at this in central europe they found significant amounts of these synthetic progestins in wastewater and surface water runoff from farms and obviously drinking water. So when we look at that, we have an issue with possible increased absorption of these synthetic progestins in, in aquatic organisms like our fish and our food. So this is a ecotoxicology problem because it may affect male aquatic organisms and female aquatic organisms, changing their hormones and changing the disruption. You know, we know that in fish, synthetic progestins at very small concentration disturb the hormone balance and change the genes, alter sexual development, reproduction. So could this have an impact on our food supply? For sure. And what is it doing to us? Because we are basically in ingesting all of the byproducts of these medications that everybody is taking and that we also feed to our feed animals and other things. So these synthetic progestins and hormones that are in birth control and everything else are in our groundwater as well. But, you know, that's a little, that's a whole nother story for us to talk about at another time. So let me give you some concluding remarks and some things to think about. So if you want to look at this paper, number one, the paper is called Progesterone, a steroid with wide range of effects in physiology as well as human medicine. And it was from the International Journal of Molecular Science. And it was um, published in July of 2022. And so the take home message is progesterone is a significant steroid hormone. And it actually has multiple pathways. That's way beyond the traditional thought of just female organism, pregnancy, and fertility. It plays a role in male fertility, 
neurophysiological conditions and mood in both men and women. It acts directly on the central nervous system. It is a painkiller and also helps with sleep. And it has a massive effect across the body. Production in the ovaries help the circulating levels of progesterone. Production in the adrenals primarily go to the production of cortisol and your androgens, your kind of male-ish hormones. We have those, just not as much as women. Treating with micronized oral progesterone or treating with a topical um, fat-soluble uh, lipophilic progesterone as a cream or an oil is going to be helpful to restore balance. And the neuroactive effects of progesterone and its metabolites are a possible promise for things like neurodegenerative diseases, things like demyelination diseases like multiple sclerosis and ALS. That's way beyond the thoughts of what we used progesterone before. So I think that progesterone is probably one of the secret sauces in helping women sort of transition through perimenopause and into menopause and beyond. And progesterone is important and we shouldn't, we shouldn't assume that it's not. And progesterone, even, even in um, osteoporosis, I didn't bring this up because it wasn't in the paper, but even in osteoporosis, progesterone has some, some small but important effects even on osteoblast activity as well. So it is an important hormone. And when we look at studies using it, particularly for sleep, it is an important hormone that's been used for a long time in postmenopausal women with relative safety for years after menopause. So that's your primer on progesterone. I hope this was informative for you. If you loved this episode, I know it was super geeky, but you know what? I know when I hear back from my listeners, you love the geekiness. So if this was geeky for you and you loved it, please give me a thumbs up. Leave me a review because that helps everybody else find this podcast so other people can be in the know just like you. And if you loved it, please share it because that helps every other woman alive get to understand their hormones and this transitional period. Thank you so much for listening to Menopause Mastery. I can't wait to talk to you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery podcast. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD and you can reach me online at bettymurray.com.